listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Edward Keenan. I am filling in for Alan Carter, who uh, uh, is on in Milwaukee. Is, is he still in Milwaukee? He's on his way back. He's. Uh, I think he has a job to do tonight. Angry, upset, <laughs> disappointed. That was a, it was a good uh, game by the Raptors, a disappointing finish as they sort of just went cold right at the end, but I'm sure he'll have uh, lots uh, to tell us about his adventures in, uh, in Wisconsin uh, when he comes back. From what I can tell from social media, he spent uh, 95% of his time in the city uh, eating uh, and, and no vegetables. Just sausages and cheese. Sausages and cheese, and pretzels, and beer. So uh, he'll be back tomorrow. He can tell you all about that. But I'm happy to be with you through till 1 o'clock. A bit of breaking news uh, to talk about right now is a Transformer fire in Georgetown that has... uh, The Transformer exploded uh, and and has impacted several homes. They've evacuated uh, a block or two of residences, and also uh, Toronto Premium Outlets Mall has been evacuated as a result of the incident uh, due to the smoke, according to inhalton.com. However, police say all the occupants are safe. So, if you had some shopping planned and you were heading to Toronto Premium Outlets, uh, maybe tomorrow's your day, because uh, Transformer Fire has shut it down there. Um, Some sad news I just wanted to talk about briefly, uh, because it's close to home for me, quite literally close to my home, just a few blocks away from my home this morning, about the time I was getting up to come in here uh, to to be on the panel with uh, Stafford and Adrian Batra, um, a woman was struck by a freight train at the level crossing at Old Weston Road and Davenport Road and died at the scene. Uh, They said police were there around 7 a.m., they told the uh, Toronto Star, uh, and the intersection has been blocked uh, since, and as far as I know, continues to be blocked. So, uh, And train traffic on that route was going to be uh, rerouted uh, f- for the time being. But why I wanted to talk about this a little bit, it's, it's obviously sad, but one of the most frustrating things about this for me, uh, in addition to the sort of the grief of, of seeing somebody die in such a situation, is that that crossing and the roads all through it junction road old western road right there near davenport uh were closed for about almost most of three years uh for construction because when they were building the up express they put the uh go train and the up express train underground like they built a a little tunnel a little trench there so they go under the road and when they reopened it everybody was astounded to see that the freight rail tracks were still a level crossing. You're going to do three years of construction, spend how many millions and millions and millions of dollars, why not bury the freight rail tracks at the same time at the exact same crossing? They're 10 feet away. And and so they didn't do that. And so that, that leads to some daily frustration when traffic gets backed up there waiting for a freight train to pass. Uh, but But it also leads, in this case, to tragedy. Where we, if you don't have a level crossing, you don't have a pedestrian dying there. Anyhow, sad, sad news. And I just wanted to, to draw attention to that because it just feels like so often we do these kinds of things. Um, 
There is big, well, big-ish news. It's kind of, it feels almost like throwback news. Uh, out of Washington uh, late last night and still in the news today because President Donald Trump issued a pardon for former media mogul, former Canadian, uh, current Canadian resident, uh, Lord Conrad Black, who, of course, uh, owned, owned a giant newspaper empire spanning the globe or spanning North America and England in any event, uh, and then was... Uh, jailed in the United States, tried in Chicago, and jailed for a time in the United States after he was convicted of uh, fraud related to his operation of that newspaper outlet. He's always said it was a bunch of sort of nefarious shareholder good do-gooders meddling in his affairs who who done him wrong. Uh, but Donald Trump has now issued him a pardon. Uh, joining us on the phone is uh, Global National Washington Bureau producer Reggie Ciccini. Hello, yep. Reggie. How you doing? I, I think I butchered something there. That's all right. Okay. As long as somebody uh, makes an effort, then I answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, it, it, it does feel like, to those of us who've uh, kept up with Conrad Black over the last few years, uh, he published a, a glowingly admiring book about Donald Trump talking about what a remarkable man he is and has written several columns uh, in his defense uh, in the National Post over the past few years. Uh, and now Donald Trump is, is giving him a pardon. He is giving him a pardon, and he's basically kind of putting him in a line of a few other people that the president has pardoned over the last year or so that basically Donald Trump sees in the same light that he sees himself be thrown into, where people say that they were, you know, people were going after them for one reason or for another, for for reasons that, uh, you know, uh, like somebody like Joe Arpaio, who was a sheriff in, uh, in the U.S. Southwest, who had a long number of complaints around him, and people said that he was being treated unfairly. The president bought into that. The president gave a pardon. It's kind of the same way uh, that we see with this with this Conrad Black uh, pardon that was given out today. But you're right when you talk about that book that came out or that that was written back in 2018 uh, that Conrad Black had written about Donald Trump. You know, one of the lines in there is a great majority of anti-Trump activity in the first year of his administration was devoted to falsehoods. And Donald Trump kind of sees that as something that lifts him up and makes him feel better and then can give that kind of, you know, praise onto somebody else by saying, well, here's what you said about me. Here's what I can do for you. (laughs) He he, he, uh, Conrad Black issued a statement, and he he felt he should note in the statement that when he was being tried in Chicago, Donald Trump had followed the case closely and offered to come and give evidence at my trial in Chicago on one of the counts that was later an acquittal. So... These guys have known each other a long time. They have known each other, and then it's also noted in that statement that the, that Donald Trump, you know, then Citizen Trump, didn't actually uh, need to be uh, need to be sent there. He didn't have to give any kind of you know words or praise about Conrad Black as being the kind of person. But what's interesting to read here is when you talk about uh, kind of the, the the friendship that they have with each other and this connection that they're kind of trying to you know mingle up and make make relevant right now. Uh, Conrad Black, in that really lengthy statement that he put out uh, about his pardon, he discusses uh, things that you know. Uh, 
you know, as he says, quote, I suggested that knew better than anyone because Robert Mueller was uh, was involved in some of the charges that were going against Conrad Black at the time. And so, too, was James Comey. And so, too, was Pat Fitzgerald, who who is uh, now Comey's counsel. So these are things that, you know, the president and Conrad Black were able to kind of volley back and forth with each other to say, well, look, here, I still understand what you were going through because I was going through that many years before you. <laughs> the guys who brought you low are the same guys who've had it out for me this whole time. Well, absolutely. And according to Conrad Black in this phone call that he had, this quick phone call with the president, the president described them as, quote, bad cops. And they were able to kind of, you know, have their little, you know, niceties with each other about these people that were going after them. And both of them now feel completely vindicated for the things that they were originally either convicted of or uh, that people were believing against them. So for Donald Trump uh, in Washington, in the United States, I mean, this seems like yet another one of these sort of like small little personal stories that somehow becomes part of, of the national governance story, like the personal vendettas and histories and all of that. Um, is this part of uh, some larger pattern or strategy? Is there any, I mean, obviously for Canadians who are admirers or detractors of Conrad Black, there's news because they've been following him. Is there any significance to this in the United States uh, political landscape right now? Not really, only in the sense that, you know, it's being drummed up, it's being talked about on some of the cable networks right now by saying, well, look, the president has gone out and, and uh, you know, granted clemency for somebody who, you know, he feels was treated poorly by the law and justice system. So it's going to get picked up. It is being picked up by some of the left networks. Fox has kind of been going on a little bit more about this. So same with some of the uh, further right-leaning uh, print publications. But for the most part, this is just basically what we've seen Donald Trump do time and time again when it comes to granting clemency, using it less frequently than his predecessors have, but he's doing it in a much more political fashion by saying, well, look, these people deserve clemency because people went after them, and even though the things that people went after them for or they were convicted of uh, were potentially heinous and were potentially, you know, wrong, and if it was anybody else who had done this, they would be still in jail, you know, I feel that connection with them, so we're just going to go ahead and do this. By tomorrow, this will likely be blown off the map because something else will have happened in the White (laughs) House, but for today, uh, this is the news that President Trump is saying, look, I'm the president, I can do this myself. So it goes. Uh, Reggie Ch- Cicchini, you did uh, Glo- Global National uh, Washington Bureau producer, thanks for unpacking that for us a little bit. Thank you. Um, and uh, I'll just uh, end by saying that in fairness to uh, Trump and Black, I should note that, tr- that Conrad Black's statement said that Donald Trump said, we've known each other a long time, but that wasn't any part of the reason nor has any of the supportive things you've said and written about me. So uh, explicitly denying that this is a, a return back pat for all the back patting. Man, Conrad Black's arm must be tired from patting uh, Donald Trump's back all these years. Uh, and it turns out he doesn't have to because the pardon was coming anyway. This has nothing to do with that. Um, and, and just as a final note, I would say that um, th- this pardon does not change Conrad Black's Uh, sort of banned by the Ontario Securities Commission from acting as a corporate director or officer of a public company in Ontario. Uh, He was removed from the Order of Canada after his conviction, and uh, I suspect he stays uh, removed from that now. So I dance for the dough. I'm tired of playing games, can't take it no more. But right then, something caught my eye. Could this be the one I want walking by my side? Going through the neighborhood, you're looking good. We want to move on now out to the West Coast, though, from Washington to British Columbia. Uh, 
where uh, Global News investigative reporters uh, Sam Cooper and Brian Hill have a sort of an update that comes at a time uh, when money laundering uh, is a hot, hot topic and a topic of real concern in British Columbia's real estate market. Uh, in, in 2018, a Global News investigation revealed that a secret police study had linked more than a billion dollars worth of high-end Vancouver area property transactions that year to suspected money laundering and organized crime. Sorry, that was in 2016. And a B.C. government recently, just last week, estimated $5 billion was laundered through the province's real estate market last year alone. $5 billion. So this is apparently a very large problem. Organized crime using the B.C. real estate market to launder money. And today, uh, Global Global publishes uh, an investigation of uh, someone... An alleged heavyweight gangster who could be a poster child for BC's public inquiry into money laundering. Uh, Sam Cooper, one of the journalists on that file uh, for Global News, joins us on the phone now, I believe. Hi, Sam. Uh, yes, it's Sam. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Uh, so your story that I'm looking at uh, deals with the case of uh, Kwok Chung Tam. A man, uh, you write, with many identities and powerful connections, and how he could be essentially the poster boy, potentially, for this money laundering inquiry that's launching now. That's right. So what I've been following for a number of years in British Columbia was a huge money laundering issue we believed in real estate. And over the past year or two, I found out how deeply connected casinos were, and most specifically what is the the Macau casino money laundering model, which involves global organized crime, mostly connected to mainland China-based drug trafficking gangs. And so uh, my report last year, pointed directly at this crime network, um, including the Big Circle Boys, that mainland China-based gang, the dominant one, uh, and how they were using Vancouver's real estate market, especially the high end. We, uh, my story looked at homes valued $3 million to $33 million. So that is just the high end. Police believe that mostly mm. this crime network had laundered a billion. We just learned that if you go below three million and outside Vancouver, the government believes it's five billion dollars per year. So that's the model, and uh, we believe in this new story. According to the evidence, that this man, Mr. Tam, is a very high level member that would help to illustrate how this Vancouver model took root in British Columbia, and the clues towards that are ties to Macau gang wars, allegedly, hits put on, allegedly, on other uh, triad leaders, and the underground banking interests around the world, according to the the, the clues we're seeing in the documents. So, I mean, according to your these documents that you have, not all of which have been proven in court, the allegations contained in them, but according to these documents, it paints a picture of Tam as a heroin importer, a chemical drug lab, lab operator, a loan shark, uh, with a history of violence. How has he stayed in the country this long, if this is the sort of files that police have on him? Well, that's what we're looking at. And first of all, uh, it's been known uh, for a while, uh, our colleague Stuart Bell has reported that sometimes high-level crime figures simply, it seems, cannot be deported from Canada. Part of that is 
I suppose the the permissiveness, the forgiveness of uh, Canadians and our legal system, or maybe it's the ineffectiveness, or maybe it's the deep pockets of people that can afford lots of lawyers and and drag a process out beyond any reasonable expectation. In my view, that maybe is the case with with Mr. Tam. Absolutely. Our files show incredible amounts of police investigations. It looks like diligent efforts from Canada Border Service Agency to uh, to deport this man that's believed to be so dangerous in Canada. But time and again, he has uh, beat those efforts, and it looks like cut some kind of deal with the government uh, in 2017. So it's believed he's uh, residing in a condo in Richmond. Again, he denies any links to organized crime, but police government officials believe the exact opposite. They believe he's a very high-level and important member of organized crime. So uh, as this public inquiry unfolds in the next little while, do you expect uh, Mr. Tam or people like him to, to, to sort of become key figures in an inquiry like this? To the extent that my reporting has some people think, um, you know, shone a light and laid some groundwork for this type of inquiry, I believe uh, my files show very interesting connections, powerful connections we pointed towards. We're still probing them. But I believe it's important to to know that for for high-level figures to be so successful, Corruption can occur, and I think that the inquiry needs to look at that sort of thing. We know that in Quebec, the the Charbonneau Commission uncovered links of organized crime, getting you know ties to government, and I believe someone like Tam or the people that have done business with them can shed light on that issue. Okay, investigative reporter Sam Cooper, uh, people can read your report today at globalnews.ca and follow the story as it unfolds in the future there. Thanks for uh, for explaining it to us a bit today. No problem. Okay, uh, and I want to turn my attention now to uh, a more local story here in Ontario, here in Toronto. Uh, for me, as uh, in, my, in my regular job as a columnist at the Toronto Star, it's uh, very local that my colleague uh, Laurie Montesbrotten wrote on the weekend about, uh, it seems like what we've been talking about all along is provincial cuts to various programs. In this case, uh, the disability program is raising some alarms from people. The, the headline on Lori's story was, How Will They Eat? And it dealt specifically with the change to how the Ontario Disability Support Program uh, categorizes certain illnesses. Uh, some advocates are worried that, cha- that the changes that have recently been announced are going to exclude people newly diagnosed with so-called episodic disabilities, such as mental illness, chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, HIV, and some cancers, and would force them to rely on Ontario Works, which is the regular welfare program. That's a significant difference for some people. People in the disability program uh, who cannot work typically get up to uh, $1,169 a month, which is a meager income. That's not much more than $12,000 a year. But people in the Ontario Works program earn up to only, or get up to only $733 a month, uh, which trying to picture living on that in Ontario today is, uh, especially if you're unable to work because of a disability or severe illness, uh, is is just it's it's kind of unimaginable to me. Uh, joining us on the phone right now is Tammy Yates, executive director at Realize, a national organization that works to support people with episodic disabilities. Tammy, welcome to the program. Thank you so 
moment for having me. So uh, d- tell us about, it, it seems like uh, it, the, these pro- programs were announced. Was it immediately obvious that this was a, a concern for people? So from the moment that we heard the announcement and the exact wording of the announcement around uh, reviewing the definition of disability, it was a red flag for the community um, because the alignment of the current federal criteria, which is what the provincial government um, is focusing on, is actually an issue that we've been advocating for um, with respect to for 21 years. And that is the expansion or the um, broadening of the definition of disability at the federal level. Because at the federal level, it's quite um, binary and dichotomous. So you're either uh, able or disabled, or you have to meet the criteria of a severe or prolonged disability. And federally, we're actually moving away from that, whereas provincially, we're now moving towards that severe, prolonged alignment. And that's exactly what has raised the alarm for us because we know the direction that that is going in. So how soon uh, are people who, who suffer from these kinds of chronic illnesses and episodic uh, disabilities, uh, how, I mean, has, has their eligibility already been cut? Is this coming in a few months? Is there uh, time or hope to, to get the government to revisit this? The, uh, so we have actually, a number of us, have actually taken part in consultations with the government. Um, So, of course, we've shared all of our concerns with respect to eligibility, with respect to the definition, um, especially for people living with episodic disabilities, because by the very nature, um, you can have a flare-up or an episode in an unpredictable time frame. So uh, you cannot simply identify whether it will be severe, prolonged, or otherwise. So it's that up and down unpredictability that um, is, is, of course, uh, makes the disenabling environment uh, a concern. However, the uh, consultations that have taken place have now wrapped up, and the assumption is that before the end of the year, um, there may actually uh, be programmatic changes should there be changes. But we've advocated strongly for those who are currently on the program to be grandfathered on the program. And of course, advocated even stronger that the definition does not change. Or if there is a change, that episodic disabilities is ingrained and entrained in whatever change transpires. Uh, So my understanding is that, uh, you know, at least a third of the 375,000 people who currently receive ODSBP suffer from episodic disabilities. So this is a lot of people we're talking about. It's a lot of people. And of course, needless to say, even if those who are currently on the program are grandfathered, an episode, you know what, someone can um, develop an episodic disability at any point in their lifetime. So you're currently looking at the stats of those who are on the program, but we then have the number of people who may eventually become um, episodically disabling. And 
you know, the assumption very often is that these numbers are so great and that everyone um, wants to access social assistance or welfare, as you put it. And you rightly said, you started with saying that this figure is barely enough currently for anyone to live on. Mm. We're talking about $1,169. That is not even a rent in Toronto as it stands. What it is that we want to ensure is that for those who need the services, who need the supports, that the programs and the eligibility is there. All right, Tammy Yates, uh, the executive director at Realize, thanks for explaining that to us today, and good luck in in your efforts to reverse this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for highlighting this with you. It's critical. Thanks again. We want to come back to a story. I think Alan talked about it earlier this week on the program. Uh, There was another Amber Alert uh, for a missing child that went out uh, in the middle of the night, or while most people uh, were asleep. And as seems to happen in a lot of these cases, the child was located safely in Toronto, uh, possibly as a result of those Amber Alerts going out. Uh, But as has been the case with the last few Amber Alerts, too, There was a loud chorus of whining. My phone is making a noise. Uh, From people who uh, are upset that authorities are doing everything they possibly can to save a child's life. I mean, how dare they? How dare they? I was trying to sleep. Um, uh, So we, we... we hear about those complaints, and then, of course, uh, I, I know Alan talked about it earlier in the week. There are people uh, like me who make fun of the people who complain about about those. Uh, but Niagara Regional Police today released an audio recording of someone who called 911 after they received the Amber Alert. Now, 911, of course, that's the phone number you call when you have an emergency, a pressing emergency that requires an immediate police, fire, or ambulance response. Here's, here's a call from 911 after that Amber Alert went out. Mag emergency, do you need police, fire, ambulance? No, I, I want to know uh, the child abduction, Sudbury. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to know who the hell is sending these alerts out. What the, what right do you have to send an alert out to Niagara Falls? Wake me up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Okay, sir, it's okay? an Amber Alert for a child that's been abducted. I don't give a okay? okay? I don't need well, to have these coming on my phone from Sudbury, all right? I don't know what you mind. We have nothing to do with that, so. Well, I know I'm not blaming you personally. You have to understand. What, what would you like me to call to complain? Because this is bullshit. So... <laughs> 
you know, he says it there. I don't give up. Which does seem to sub up his attitude. Uh, now, he did ask, you know, where would you like to be called? Because this is the thing. These people have been calling 911. So, so first of all, I have a hard time having any sympathy for people who have so little sympathy for a missing child that they would call that angry over this, right? Uh, but to the extent that I think maybe they have complaints about how this system's implemented, uh, how it's being, and that they want to discuss it, why would you call 911? First of all, 911 is an emergency service, and if you clog up their lines uh, with, with this kind of call, that means somebody who has a genuine emergency cannot get through. But second of all, 911 doesn't run the Amber Alert system. 911, the, the 911 phone lines do not send out Amber Alerts, right? They, they, well, he said he wasn't holding the person So you might as well, involved. like, I'm sure after he got off the phone with them, maybe he called Canadian Tire, too. I'd like to register a complaint! Well, uh, we don't do that either, sir. After what? that, it's like, 411. Call 411. It's got to be a phone company, right? Um, if you do have suggestions about how the Amber Alert system could be operated better, uh, you can contact Alert Ready, which is alertready.ca. Those are the people who manage the Amber Alert system. You can tweet them on the Twitter uh, social media network, uh, at Ontario Warnings. Uh, and there, at least, people somehow peripherally involved in the Amber Alert system will get your message. But when you call a 911 operator, you're just tying up their time. And, I mean, maybe you don't give up, just like that guy we just heard. But, anyhow, there's a follow-up to that. Uh a story that may be of concern to many people uh, who have been looking for messaging services uh, and apps on their phone that they feel uh, maybe somewhat more secure uh, is a vulnerability that WhatsApp revealed in its system that could have allowed hackers access to its users' phones with a London-based human rights lawyer possibly among the targets. This is uh, uh, from a report from CNN Business. Um, so, so WhatsApp revealed that, that hackers had gained access uh, to possibly to, to some of its users' phones or had, they'd identified a vulnerability that would have allowed them to gain access to some of the users' phones uh, and, and has made an update to fix that. Um, so if you have used WhatsApp or if you're just generally uh, concerned about the state of online security, uh, Maybe we'll get some information from you uh, joining us to give us that information because I know so little about uh, <laughs> information security. Is James Smith, co-founder and VP of Threat Intelligence and Offensive Security for Kodai Solutions. James, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ed. Good afternoon. So WhatsApp revealed this vulnerability, um, and, and it says it has fixed it, uh, but it would have allowed hackers to implant malicious code on victims' phones by placing voice calls to their, to their system, and the, the malicious software possibly could have been implanted even if the user didn't answer the call. Is that the case? Yeah, that's correct. So vulnerabilities like this, they're called zero-day exploits. Um, what they allow is they actually allow an attacker to infect the phone, but it requires no user interaction on the victim side. So once infected, um, someone can capture uh, your microphone, uh, 
recording cryptic conversations, steal private files and personal materials and things like that hmm. from a victim's phone. So now, according to the CNN report I'm reading, the, uh, the, 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 the piece of malware, the, the software, there may be some connection here to a piece of software that's, that's basically only used by large governmental security organizations. Uh, can you explain that to us a little bit? Yeah, that's correct. So this vulnerability was being used by a, uh, by a surveillance company out of Israel called NSO Group. Um, it's used to go after uh, terrorists, uh, organized crime, and things like that. But there's also, it's also being used for abuse uh, to go after human rights activists, and uh and doctors as well hmm um so so i mean that that may be why there's i mean these are always concerns uh but but in a case like this where nobody would know who the actor is but to believe that it may be a a, an espionage uh actor or a a government one that's where human rights officials and whatnot become concerned uh, that maybe they may be the ones targeted yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's no regulation in this market, so this type of uh, software is just being sold to governments around the world, not being regulated, and it's very easy for different countries to just purchase the software, and it can be uh, it can be abused and used for for other uses that are malicious. All right. Now, a lot of people were using WhatsApp, I know, uh, because it's an encrypted service, and they, they believed that it would be more secure than something like Facebook Messenger or their general text messages. Um, it, it, is there, right now, a secure, a genuinely secure app that people who, who want to avoid being exposed to this can use? Yeah. Uh, one of them would be Signal. It's an open-source app. The source code is publicly available. Um, it's being audited on a regular basis. It's actually more secure than uh, WhatsApp. It's All right. Close. Thank you. James Smith from Kodai Solutions, thanks for helping us to understand this a little bit more. Thank you. All right. And I would just uh, end up by saying uh, if you have been using WhatsApp, if you're concerned about this, uh, the, the company says that you can... Uh, make sure the vulnerability is fixed on your phone by going to the App Store or the Google Play Store, depending on the kind of phone you have, and updating uh, to the to the, downloading the latest updates, making sure you update it. Welcome back to the program. It's uh, look at like you outside there. It's like twelve degrees, but it's sunny. Finally, we are getting mid-March weather here in the middle of May. Uh, but I know if I know anything about Toronto, people are looking outside right now and thinking, "I gotta hit a patio. I gotta hit a patio." When I worked in restaurants, we we'd get like the first sub-zero day in February, and customers would come in and say, can you, can you set up the patio for us? Uh, so it, as we approach finally at long last patio season, we wanted to talk about 
where we're going to go to eat and drink in the sunshine this summer. Uh, Global News National Online Journalist, Smart Living and Entertainment Division, I guess. Uh, <laughs> correspondent <laughs> Megan Coley joins us, joins me in the studio now. So, Megan, you looked this stuff up. Yeah, I've done some uh, research. You've I done a say. lot of firsthand a research. A lot of personal out, research. Uh, yeah. pounding, the, pounding them back on the pavement. Yeah, as, it's not yeah. an easy job. Yeah, no, no, no. But I, somebody has to do it, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, and what are, what are our conclusions? Like, what, what are the sort of top places where we want to go? What yeah. are we eating and drinking when we get there? Yeah, so I have a few favorites. There are a couple of mainstream ones, which I feel like a lot of people know about, but... They're you the best for a reason, them. yeah. yeah. Um, El Catrina in the Distillery District is one of my all-times. Um, mm-hmm. It's an awesome large patio. Uh, they have heaters, too, set up, so I know this so Canadian on... <laughs> spring, the weather can turn pretty quickly, so you're covered. And they've got fresh guac that they smash at your table, um, mm. which is just to die for. Um, that's very fresh, and it's it's that's actually a good innovation, because my experience of guacamole is as soon as I smash it, it starts turning brown. So exactly. if you do it at the table... Yeah, no problem. You can't lose. Um, Bellwoods Brewery is another favorite of mine on the Ossington Strip, heading over into the West End. Um, They've got a massive selection of craft brews um, and picnic benches, which is a cool vibe. Um, And it's easy for bigger groups. So if you're kind of kicking around with a couple buddies and you're looking for somewhere to head, there's usually space there. Um, another like low key favorite of mine is O'Grady's on church, uh, yeah. right in the middle of, uh, of the village there. It's especially fun during pride, but I feel like it's got a pretty good vibe all year it's round. It's a good street vibe there all the time, right? And they like... have twinkly lights, which is right at the top of my list of requirements for good patios, <laughs> um, which is, which is awesome. So and if you're a bar owner out there wondering, how do we get onto a <laughs> list like this? Twinkly lights. It's just the lights. Yeah. Yeah. Hit up, Transform hit up a your space. local Canadian tire. Ask about the twinkly lights. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I have another one that um, for the vegans and vegetarians out there, um, Harvest Kitchen on Harbor Street has a really charming patio in the back, which I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, but the food is amazing. And they locally source all of their ingredients from farms uh, in the area. So mm. they're supporting local business and their menu changes all the time because... The farm produce changes all the time. Right, so it's all local. What kind of food do they serve? Like, what is what's the sort of genre of food? Yeah, so it's um, a lot of like bowls, big salads. Um, you know, uh, yeah, the like grain bowls are delicious. Um, and sort of, you know, when you try to ch- turn like a cauliflower heart into like a piece of meat, right, um, right. but they do a really good job of it. You, I feel like you wouldn't even know it's not meat. Excellent. So, so maybe hit up McDonald's on the way there. Uh, uh, No, I'm just kidding. If you're, if you're a meat lover, this might not be the place for you, but (laughs) maybe the patio will, will change your mind because it's pretty charming. Right. Possibly, possibly. And, uh, any, uh, any others, uh, is it sort of under the radar off the beaten track? Yeah, you know what? Um, one that I love is uh, Seven Numbers. There are two locations. There's one on Eglinton West and another on um, Dun- and, uh, the Danforth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's homemade Italian food, which I feel like might not be what you're craving in like the dead of summer. But um, the spot on the Danforth has a really charming little patio as well, so you I can have well. your you yeah. can have your pasta and enjoy the sun while it's here. Uh, there is never a time of year when I'm not craving pasta. There's, what, That's I fair. don't know how many knots <laughs> I put in there or nevers, but what I meant to say is I always will have pasta. <laughs> and Seven Numbers is a dynamite patio. Megan, we're, we're out of time, but thank you for... I know the research was hard, 
and and thankless. It, it's punishing, yeah. punishing work. I'll I'll keep doing it this summer because it, I'm passionate about hours it. Hours in the gym that you have to <laughs> you have to put in afterwards. Exactly. Thanks, thanks for walking us through it, though. Uh, that's all the time I have. Thank you out there for joining me on this sunny Thursday afternoon. Guess what? Alan Carter is back tomorrow, and he can tell you all about how he spent his time in Milwaukee. I imagine food and drink will factor into that as well. My name is Ed Keen, and thanks for listening. This is Global News Radio. And then we hit the back patio. That's why we hit your back patio.